Hello, I'm Father Matthew Midas from St. Angela Marisi Parish in Florissant, and we're going to talk today about the two vocational sacraments of matrimony and the priesthood, holy orders it's called. I'm going to begin by throwing some philosophy at you. Uh, we priests studied philosophy before we studied theology, and the reason why is because philosophy teaches you how to think, which is why priests are all so smart. Or at least they think they're smart. There's a word we use in philosophy called etiology, E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. It's the study of causes. A cause, of course, is something that causes another thing to exist. If A causes B, that means that without A, B would not exist, since A causes B. And we understand there are five causes. And I'm going to use as an example Michelangelo carving his statue of David to explain the different causes. The first cause is what we call the formal cause. It's the plan or the blueprint. Um, if he's going to carve a statue of David, he's got to have some kind of a plan in mind of what it's going to look like, how tall it's going to be, etc., etc. So the formal cause is the first one. Without the plan, there's no statue. The second cause is what we call the efficient cause, the person who actually carves the statue. In this case, it's Michelangelo and uh, he is the efficient cause, no Michelangelo, no statue of David. The third cause is the material cause. What's it going to be made out of? Well, in this case, it's white Carrara marble, and so again, no Carrara marble, no statue of David. The fourth cause is what we call the instrumental cause. Uh, what's it going to use to carve it with? His bare hands? I don't think so. Uh, a pneumatic chisel? No. Uh, he's going to use a hammer and chisel, and that is the instrument he's going to carve it with. Again, no hammer and chisel, no statue of David. But the last cause is the one that the philosophers call the final cause. It's why. The purpose, the point. Why is he carving this statue? What purpose will it serve? Well, the Greeks who came up with these concepts years ago, centuries ago, applied them to the human race. And we apply it in theology as well. The whole understanding being, going back to the very first question of the catechism, who made us? Well, God made us. Why did God make us? What is the final cause of our existence? And it's to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, so as to be happy with him forever in the kingdom to come. Now, we serve God in many ways, but when it talks about, you talk about why God actually made us, he made each one of us for a specific reason, to serve him in a specific way. And this we call our vocation. Vocation is a, comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. And so it's appropriate that God, we call it vocation, because God does call us to serve him. We understand the traditional three vocations are the priesthood and religious life, the married life, and the single life. And uh, a vocation, therefore, is not something so much that you decide, that you figure out what you want to do. Rather, it's something you discern. It's what, what is God calling me to do? And whenever God calls us, we answer yes. Uh, I think the best practical definition of sin there is, is anytime you say no to God. That was the problem of Adam and Eve. They said no to God, and so they committed the original sin. And uh, saying yes to God is what the new Eve, Mary, was all about, and the new Adam, Christ. And so we understand that when God does call us to these ways of life, we respond. And he, <clears throat> pardon me, backs them up with a sacrament. In the case of marriage, it's the sacrament of matrimony. In the case of priesthood, it's the sacrament of holy orders. Let's talk about marriage first. 
You know, when we first started talking about the sacraments, I mentioned how these are the ways in which Christ ultimately fulfills his very last promise to be with us always till the end of the age. That somehow or another, the sacraments all make Christ present here on earth. They preserved his presence from 2,000 years ago so that those of us who were born in the 20th and 21st centuries can have the same experience of knowing Christ as the apostles and the first Christians in the very first centuries of the Christian era. And it's in, matrimony is, and we see it very clearly in, in the, the uh, Eucharist, how the bread and wine actually become Jesus's body and blood, but it's there for all the sacraments. You go to confession, you'll, you'll hear my voice saying, I absolve you from your sins, but it's actually Christ who is absolving you of your sins. Christ is there absolving you of your sins. Same thing for confirmation, same thing for baptism, same thing for all the sacraments. Matrimony is an interesting one. You know, back when the, the, the Vatican Council met in the 60s, they talked a lot about the uh, Catholic home, but they never called it the Catholic home. They always referred to it as the domestic church. Interesting use of language. The reason why I believe is because, you know, we talk about a Catholic church building as being a holy place, and so it is. You walk in there and you know the presence of Christ is there because of the sanctuary lamp telling you that the Blessed Sacrament is there in the tabernacle. That is the Eucharistic sacramental presence of Christ that makes it a holy place, that makes it a church, really. Well, guess what? Matrimony is no less a sacrament than the Eucharist. And every Catholic home is made a domestic church by the presence of Christ there in dad and mom, husband and wife. We don't use the word transubstantiation in matrimony like we do for the Eucharist, uh, although I think we probably could, because a change takes place when a man and woman go to the altar and say the vows, such that they still look the same, they still you know, have all the appearances intact, but a real profound change has taken place. The man becomes Christ, and the woman becomes Christ's body and bride, the church. And even though, uh, you know, I cannot prove that the Eucharist becomes Jesus' body and blood. We take it on Jesus' word that, you know, it does happen. I think I can not maybe prove, but demonstrate it takes place in matrimony. Because, and the proof such as it is, is in the, your children. Because your kids will know, those of you who are married and have kids, your kids will know instinctively, without anybody telling them, that dad is Christ and mom is his body and bride the church, because nothing makes kids feel more affirmed, lovable, and loved than knowing that mom loves dad and dad loves mom. When that is there, everything's fine. When that's not there, oh my goodness, do we have problems. It's the thing that God had in mind, that his love would be present on earth, personified in mom's committed love to dad and dad's committed love to mom. And it's this particular love, this unbreakable bond of love, that really makes Christ present in ways that are palpable and are being felt by all the members of the family. Such that beautiful of a thing. Matrimony is like baptism. It's something that existed before Christ. Certainly John the Baptist was baptizing before Jesus showed up on the scene. In the same way people were marrying and being given in marriage long before Jesus showed up on the scene. We understand that Christ took something that pre-existed and gave it a new character, a new meaning, a new purpose, a new reality, if you will. 
And such is the case with marriage. So much so that some theologians like to make a distinction between marriage and matrimony. Marriage being the covenant, the legal bond of the old law, matrimony being the sacramental bond. Let's talk about the difference. In the 19th chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel, the Pharisees come up to Jesus with a question. They're trying to make him look bad, trying to make him say something that will get him in trouble. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? What about this woman who had seven husbands? Da, 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 on and on. And in each case, they thought they had the answer. They thought they had Jesus in a real pickle. But in each case, Jesus works his way out of it and wonderfully teaches us a new and beautiful truth. In this case, the question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, lawful meaning the law of Moses, of course, which is what the Jews went by. And they knew the answer to that question was yes. Deuteronomy chapter 24, first verse says this, If a woman sh shall find disfavor in her husband's eyes, let him dismiss her with a written decree of divorce. And the reason why this was is because marriage of the old law was a contract between two people. It was a contract between the groom and the bride's father. She was a, the bride was a chattel, a property of her father. She's about to become property of her husband. And in this property deal, the men got together, worked it out. Uh, he, the dad paid the groom a dowry, and the deal was that he had to keep a roof over her head and food on her plate, but she had to put a smile on his face. That was the law. If that didn't happen, then he could send her back to Papa and pay back the dowry with interest, because a deal was a deal after all. And that was perfectly okay. Because again, this is a human contract. It's not a divine thing at all. It's like me taking two two-by-fours and gluing them together to make one, a, a solid block of wood. Is that a four-by-four? Four? Well, acts like one. But it's really two individuals held together artificially. It's only as, the bond is only as strong as the epoxy or the Elmer's glue that you use. Um, such was the case of marriage of the old law. Uh, two individuals got together, they're held there artificially by a contract, a piece of paper, terms and conditions, money changing hands. But that's all it was. And it could be broken. And it often was in Old Testament times. So if they ask, Jesus says, no, the law does not allow divorce, then they would whip out Deuteronomy and say, Jesus, you're wrong. It clearly does. But remember, these guys are pretty clever. They thought they had Jesus in a pickle because this is the 19th chapter of Matthew. In the fifth chapter of Matthew, Jesus says no divorce, except in the case of uh, what we call invalid marriage. We'll talk about that in a second. And so they had it. Either way, if he said yes, he was in trouble. If he said no, he's in trouble. If he said no, he's contradicting Moses. If he's saying yes, he's contradicting himself. Well, pretty good pickle. So what does Jesus do? Doesn't say yes, doesn't say no. Instead, he answers just the way most rabbis did. Even to this day, if you ask a rabbi a question, he'll always respond with a question. So Jesus says, how was it in the beginning? And it's like, big pardon, what? In the beginning? Yeah, you know, before there was a law, before there was a Moses, doesn't the book of Moses tell us that God made them male and female and declared for this reason a man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, and the two become as one. Thus they are no longer two but one flesh, Therefore, let no man separate what God has joined. Oh, my goodness. What God had in mind from the beginning was a relationship between husband and wife so holy, 
so absolutely like unto his own relationship with the various members of the Holy Trinity that they actually became one. Not artificially one, not legally or technically one, but really and truly one. Uh, one mind thinking is one, two hearts beating is one, two souls loving is one. It's like not uh, two, two two by fours glued together, but a solid natural four by four, a solid block of wood. No seam, no separation, nothing artificial making this happen. The point is that human beings can glue two by fours together, but only God can make a natural solid block of wood four by four. And that's exactly what matrimony is. And so, my brothers and sisters, this is what makes matrimony matrimony. The fact that it is an unbreakable bond. It is like the love of God himself, permanent. And when God says yes, he never says no. And human relationships in matrimony are supposed to be that way. Now, the question came up, however, this was interesting. Jesus says that they may not divorce unless the marriage is, and the word they used in the Greek is porneia. Now, we get the word pornography from the word porneia. It means lewdness or something like that. But it's specifically the word that they used when they first translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek to describe marriages that were unlawful, marriages that were, in the words we use today, invalid. Like, for example, when the, you know, St. Paul first started preaching to the Gentiles, they found people in the congregation who were married to their half-sister or to an even closer relative, and, um, which, of course, is unlawful. It's, you know. So the question came up, and Jesus said, no divorce, but this man's married to his half-sister. What's going on here? Well, that's a clearly an invalid marriage, a marriage that should never have been. Uh, the pagans allowed that kind of stuff, but the Christians don't. And so that process still goes on today. We call it annulments when people apply to have their marriage declared invalid. And the reason why it's done is because there are certain marriages that really are not lawful, that they really didn't really take. But the God's plan was that the two would become as one. And this really is the heart and soul of the, the whole marriage question. The great G.K. Chesterton's talked about the great Catholic superstition of divorce, meaning that if there is such a thing as divorce, then there is no such thing as matrimony, no such thing as marriage. And he's got a great point. It's the unity that the, the mom and dad have together that makes Christ truly present, and which is why it's, the church regards it as a sacrament. It's something of God, it's something in Christ, something we didn't conjure up on our own. It's not a human thing at all, it's a divine thing. And I have to think that when God calls a man and woman to serve him as husband and wife, he will give them all the things they need, all the graces that they need. If only they cooperate with those graces, if only they don't give up, uh, if only they persevere, that God will give them the strength to overcome everything. And I, I think we've seen this. I, I know I've seen this many, many times as a priest. You know, you've got a couple who've been married very happily for 60 years or more, and then the one spouse dies, and then two or three weeks later, the other spouse dies of apparently a broken heart, in perfect health, nothing in the world wrong with them. They just passed away anyway. And at the second funeral, you understand that yeah, it's sad that these children lost both parents in three weeks' time, and they, all the grandkids lost their grandparents in three weeks' time. But there's also the sense that something beautiful had taken place, that the two had really become one, so much so that the other could not exist, could not even continue to live after the death of the spouse. 
My brothers and sisters, this is what matrimony really is all about, is the two becoming one in a way that makes Christ present and enlightens the whole world and makes it a better place. Well, the other sacrament that was a vocational one we call holy orders. Notice it's the only sacrament that is in the plural. We don't talk about baptisms or confirmations, but we do talk about holy orders because there are three holy orders. We understand that this is the sacrament of the priesthood, that it was Jesus' plan that, again, that he would be present with us throughout all the ages of human history. And as a consequence of that, uh, someone was needed to confect the sacraments, to, make the, to, to stand there at, and offer the sacrifice of the Eucharist, his body and blood, to forgive sins in his name, to baptize into the resurrection of Christ, to call down the Holy Spirit for confirmation, to anoint and heal the sick of their infirmities, spiritual and physical in some cases, uh, that someone was needed to do this. And, of course, it was the apostles who were the ones that were handpicked for Jesus by the Heavenly Father and consecrated by him at the Last Supper to be his priests. We understand that by the command, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus gave the essential, the, all the essentials of ordination. How could the apostles possibly confect the Eucharist in his name, take a piece of bread and say, this is my body, and take a cup of wine and say, this is my blood, and have it actually be transformed into Jesus' body and blood, unless Jesus, didn't give them some, unless Jesus didn't give them some kind of special power to do this. And so the command to do this in remembrance of me could not be fulfilled if he had not given them the power to do this. And we understand that's exactly what Christ had in mind. Just as on Easter Sunday, when he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, they're forgiven again. They could not do this unless they had been given a very special power. And we understand this is the sacrament of holy orders. The three orders are this, bishop, priest, and deacon. The word bishop comes from the Greek word episkopos, episkopos, which literally means to oversee, an overseer, a foreman, if you will, the boss, the guy in charge. And episkopos in Greek becomes episkopus in Latin, becomes bishop in English. The word priest comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which means an elder. We see these guys mentioned a lot in the Acts of the Apostles, the councils of elders, you know, who, who would uh, offer the sacrifice with the bishop and would be, you know, the ones making decisions in the church. Uh, the word presbyteros means elder. I remember years ago when I guess I was about 40, and all of a sudden my arms weren't long enough to read things like they used to be. I went to my eye doctor and she told me that, Father, you've got presbyopia. And I know enough Greek to mean, to know what that means, it means you got the eyes of an old man. So if your doctor tells you you got presbyopia, you're getting old. But that's exactly what a presbyter is, uh, an elder. Um, the, the, the assumption is that the elders have wisdom, um, which is why we have a one group of our Congress which is called the Senate, uh, which is the Latin form for an elder. Senex in Latin means an old man. We get the word senile from it. And just as there were senators in Rome, uh, we have elders in the church, and these are the ones who work with the bishop. And uh, this is where we get the word priest from. And then there's the deacons. Now they're mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles because the apostles were so busy 
taking care of the poor and the needy and all this and the other sacramental needs of the church, they didn't have time to pray. And so they ordained seven men, St. Stephen the first martyr was one of them, uh, to be servants, to take care of the poor, to take care of the, um, the widows and orphans, and to, so the apostles would have time to pray. And the word deacon is from the Greek word diakonos, which means a servant. Uh, it's more like a household butler, that kind of servant, not a, somebody working out of the field, but someone who, you know, sort of a household servant. And that's where the word comes from. We understand that when Jesus ordained the apostles, they were ordained bishops. They had what we call the fullness of the priesthood. They had all the priestly powers. They could confect all seven sacraments, and they had authority in the church, uh, and that's still the way it is. Every diocese is headed by a bishop who has the title of an ordinary. He is the one, ordinary meaning he gives order to the parish. He's the lawgiver, he's the law enforcer. Uh, everything comes through him and from him. In the case of a very large and ancient diocese, it's called an archdiocese, headed by an archbishop. St. Louis, for example, is an archdiocese, not because we have an arch, but because it is a, 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 an historic diocese. And in fact, it's the second archdiocese in the United States, the first being Baltimore. And uh, that's pretty much what the bishops are all about. They have the fullness of the priesthood, they ordain, they celebrate mass, they're the, the head of the diocese. And every priest who serves under the bishop does so at his sufferance. You know, a lot of people ask what the difference is between a Catholic priest and a Protestant minister. Uh, well, the Protestant ministers do not claim any sacramental powers. They're ministers of the word mostly. They will perform baptisms, which any person can do. You don't have to be Catholic to, to perform a baptism. And solemnize marriages, which is what a judge, a captains of the ship, people like that can do. That takes no special sacramental power. Um, but a priest has sacramental power. He is able to take bread and wine and transform it into Jesus' body and blood. He's able to tell you your sins are forgiven. I absolve you of your sins, and then your sins are per certainly absolved. And that's true with all the sacraments that the priest confers. Um, they are through his special sacramental power. But mostly a priest is there to offer sacrifice. In this case, it's the sacrifice of the Mass. It's interesting to note how many of the ancient religions all had some kind of an altar as part of their worship, and how few modern re religions do. But the Catholic Church still does because we understand this is a very important part, the very essence of our Catholic faith. It's the job that Jesus gave us to do. We refer to the liturgy as the liturgy, uh, but the word liturgy is an interesting word. It means the work of the people, the work that you do that defines who and what you are. For example, the liturgy of a baker would be to bake. The liturgy of a salesman would be to sell things. When he does these things, he is working out his liturgy. It's the job that defines what they are. You, you can't call yourself a baker unless you bake. Well, the same way Jesus gave us a job at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. If we don't do this, we are not the body of Christ. If we don't do this, we are not the church. And if we don't have priests who are able to do this, then we aren't able to do the work that Jesus is counting on us to do. That is the very essence of what we are as Catholics. When it comes to the priesthood, um, the one thing that has become part of the priesthood, although it isn't intrinsically part of it, is the vow of celibacy. 
that a priest takes, makes the decision to live like Jesus Christ, to give up wife and family, and to serve the people uh, as an unmarried state, giving themselves complete, himself completely to them. And this has always served the church very well. Like I say, it has always, hasn't always been that way. In fact, I think the last married pope died over a thousand, just under a thousand years ago, which is a long time, but since the church is 2,000 years old, it's not terribly long. Uh, and we still have married priests in the church today still. Very few, but there are some. But by and large, it's something that we hold as a treasure, that we understand that our clergy are really, um, really, really powerful because they make this commitment to Christ. And it's amazing how even non-Catholics realize that. Um, I could tell you stories about, you know, what the difference it makes in terms of the way it impacts people's lives. But it's something that uh, we really hold as a great treasure in the Catholic Church, the vow of celibacy. Deacons are, I guess, pretty much on the same level as Protestant ministers when it comes to their actual functioning powers. Certainly they proclaim the word, they read the gospel at mass, they're even authorized sometimes to give a homily. But they also have power to baptize, again, but any Catholic can do that, but they do so as a normal course of their ministry. And also they can solemnize marriages, which again, a lot of other people in society can do that too. Again, that takes no great sacramental power. But we understand that their purpose is still to assist the church, uh, to take care of many of the functions of the parish. And thank God we have these men who get themselves ordained and trained and who run the PSR programs in the parishes, run the Vincent de Paul Society, chaplains to the Knights of Columbus, uh, visit people in the hospital, take communion to the homebound, etc., etc., etc. And it's a wonderful gift that these men are able to provide. Thank God we have these deacons. Uh, some of which are transitional, meaning that they're ordained a deacon and then uh, a year or so later they become priests. Uh, but there are men who are what we call permanent deacons. They are married men usually, but they take a vow of celibacy too, meaning if their wife dies, they will not remarry. And uh, they serve their parishes, they serve the archdiocese and the you know, different parishes beautifully and well. And we're grateful to have these men. The bottom line is that it's a special call. It's not given to everybody. When Jesus gave the teaching on matrimony, he said, um, you know, not everybody can do this. It's not for everybody. It's not something just anybody can pick up and do. It's a special grace from God. It requires a vocation. And when people cooperate with that vocation, it's amazing what God is able to accomplish, just like that hammer and chisel in the hands of Michelangelo. Uh, in my hands, it wouldn't turn out as much, but in his hands, beautiful things could happen. If that hammer and chisel fought Michelangelo, had a will of its own, and refused to carve the statue of David, what would we have had? Probably nothing, a mess if, at best. The whole idea is that these vocational sacraments are us saying yes to God, which is the essence of grace. The essence of sin is saying no to God. Adam and Eve said no and unleashed all the horrors that have still plague us today of original sin. But the new Adam and the new Eve said yes to God. Mary said, I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. Jesus said, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And so it is. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life. And people give their lives to Christ through the, accepting the vocation of matrimony, with all its sorrows, with all its joys and pleasures too, and the vocation of the priesthood, 
whose rewards and benefits are just immeasurable. Just talk to any priest who's been around for a while, someone like me. My brothers and sisters, it's for us to understand that God did indeed make us. He made us to know him, to love him, and to serve him, and to serve him as faithfully as we can, according to the way that he has called and chosen each one of us. And I thank you for listening.